Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 will be our sermon text for this morning, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And uh, before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the work of our great high priest that he stands before your throne even now. He sits at your right hand even now, pleading for us, praying for us, interceding for us. And we pray, Father, as we come to your word this morning, that you would help us to see more fully the glories of our Savior and help us to understand more fully the implications of his work for our lives. We pray that you would teach us this morning, Father, by your spirit, teach each one of us. Uh, give me wisdom as I speak, guide my words and my thoughts, and give us wisdom as we hear, give us discernment to know what is true and right and good, and to cling to that with our whole hearts. Father, pour out your spirit on us to those ends this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Are you sure? I have to say, I'm not sure about much. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. Uh, there are certain things I am sure about. I can dig in my heels with the best of them. In fact, a, a friend gave me a card one time that said, stubbornness is a virtue if you're right. And uh, it was his way of affirming my confidence in certain scriptural things. But there is a lot that I'm not so sure about. Life is filled with uncertainties. You, you do not know what tomorrow will bring, the book of Proverbs and James say. Our knowledge has limits, as God repeatedly pointed out to Job. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, says Moses. Now that said, this morning, I want you to, to leave our time together with confidence a confidence grounded in the gospel. And I want you to, to leave here ready to live out of that confidence. Because while we cannot be certain about everything, uh, we can have confidence about some things. And that confidence in Christ shapes how we live our lives day by day. So here's what we're going to see this morning. You can see this outline in your bulletin. Since we have confidence in Christ, we are to draw near, to hold fast, and to stir up. 
Since we have confidence in Christ, we are to draw near, hold fast, and stir up. So first, since we have confidence in Christ, before we talk about drawing near and holding fast and stirring up, I need to remind you of our confidence. And I say remind because if you've been with us over the past several weeks, whether you realize it or not, you have heard about our confidence. Now, there there are some who think that we can have confidence about nothing, right? Everything is uncertain to them. Uh, The favorite saying of such people is, well, that's your interpretation, right? That's your point of view, as if that settled every argument. Well, I already know that what I believe is my point of view. The important question is whether my point of view is correct or whether it's not. See, it's one thing to have humility in what you believe. We should have humility, but it's completely different to deny any possibility of certainty. No, uh, we can have confidence. Now, it's not that we can have confidence in everything. The book of Hebrews mentions confidence at least four times. It teaches that we have a confident hope in chapter 3, verse 6. It teaches that we, have, uh, that we can confidently draw near in chapter 4, verse 16. So my goal this morning is not to instill a kind of blanket self-confidence, right? The message of Scripture is not, if only you believe in yourself, anything is possible. No, that's not what I mean when I use this word, confidence. Rather, we have confidence to draw near. Verse 19 says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, now, the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, there was a place called the Most Holy Place. That's what is being echoed here in Hebrews. That the Most Holy Place was the original inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, that place where God met with his people. And the writer is saying, we can have confidence to enter into the presence of God. And by that, as, as we look at the teaching of the letter as a whole, what he means is both now, as we draw near to God in prayer, but also in the future when we will physically come into God's presence in the new creation. Now, Hebrews, as we have seen, as we've looked at it over uh, the past several weeks, teaches that our only confidence to draw near in this way comes through Christ. Our confidence is in Christ. You see, because we are a sinful people, we have no intrinsic right to draw near to God. The the unclean cannot dwell with the holy. The, The whole Old Testament speaks to that reality. But we have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. That, that, that is, as we've been talking about, Christ by his blood, which means by giving up his life, has borne the penalty for our sins. And in so doing, he has created, verse 20, a new and living way. The original way to draw near to God, of course, was in your own righteousness. Adam and Eve were created upright and good, and they could dwell directly in God's presence. But then sin happened, and that way was destroyed. And so God made a, a provisional, ceremonial way through the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices. But they only pointed forward to that final way through the blood of Jesus, the way he opened for us through the curtain. Now, the curtain, right, was the, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was a barrier that, that few could cross in Israel. Most were held off. Only the high priest could go through, and he only one time per year. 
that curtain symbolically represented the barrier between heaven and earth or the barrier between sinful people and a holy God. But Jesus, verse 20 says, has opened the way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, whether his flesh here is, is being represented as the, the new and living way or as the curtain itself, in the end, it amounts to the same thing. Our way into the presence of God is through Jesus, who in his flesh, that is in his body, has gone into heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And because he is there as our representative, or as the writer puts it, as our great high priest, we can have confidence to enter in. You see, Jesus is the way, as he himself put it. He has borne our sins, he has entered the presence of the Father, and he there represents or presents his substitutionary death by which he suffered the penalty for our sin, thus removing our guilt that we might stand guilt-free before God's law. Our debt has been paid. This is our confidence, Christ standing in heaven on our behalf, pleading the merit of his blood. Now, again, as I've said, we've been talking about this for weeks now, that the movement in our text this morning is this. We should act based on that confidence. You see, the Christian life is just that. It's a life. It's, it's not a philosophy. It's not even merely a doctrine. It, it is a life that we live in light of our doctrine, in light of what we believe. And so the writer says, verse 19, since we have confidence... And in verse 21, he says, since we have a great high priest. And then he's going to go on to say three times, let us, let us. And, and so since we have this confidence, let us act in a certain way. And let me say something that, that at first may sound radical, right? If your beliefs don't shape the way you live, then you don't believe them. Okay, let me put it uh, more mildly, right? It, it is possible for there to be a disconnect between your confessional theology and your functional theology, the theology of your lips and the theology of your heart. And a large part of the Christian life is actually bringing your functional theology into line with your confessional theology, bringing how you live in line with what you confess. Now, the goal is not the other way around, mind you, right? We, we don't want to bring our confessional theology into line with our functional. We don't change our theology based on our experience or based on the way we feel or based on what we want. Rather, we reinterpret our, our experience in light of our theology. And we bring our actions, we bring our lives, we bring our thoughts, our words, and our deeds into line with what we confess. And so since we have confidence... What? Well, since we have confidence in Christ, number one, draw near. You see this in verse 22. Now, now, in order to draw near, the writer says, we have to believe with our whole hearts. Verse 22, we draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. He's not saying that, that if you have doubts, you cannot draw near. But often, if you have doubts, you will not draw near. Right? If, if you are to have the confidence to draw near, you must settle your heart on the reality that you have been cleansed, that you are able to draw near. 
Now, again, thinking about the Old Testament and the temple and the tabernacle and, and the way the high priests would draw near, there was a bronze basin in the Old Covenant temple. And this basin was filled with water. And before the priests would enter the, ho the, the holy place, or especially before the high priest would enter the most holy place, they would wash themselves. And that physical washing was, of course, it was a ritual that they went through as a part of, part of that system, but it was symbolic of cleansing from the defilement of sin. You see this in the book of Ezekiel, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. See, God promises to cleanse his people, not just their bodies, but their souls. And so Ezekiel goes on to describe the, the result of that cleansing as being given a new heart and a new spirit. It is, a, as it were, a new birth in which the, the old filth of sin is washed away. And this is where the writer goes. Uh, in verse 22, he says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And you see there are two aspects, right, of this cleansing. First, our hearts must be sprinkled clean. Uh, this this is, uh, seems to be a direct echo uh, of the Ezekiel passage. But at the same time, it's a reference to the sprinkling of the blood throughout the Old Covenant. The blood was sprinkled on the people and on the altar and on the Ark of the Covenant to show that atonement had been made and sin could be forgiven. But now we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And the writer brought these together for us back in, in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, our hearts have been purified by the blood of Jesus. Our consciences are, are clean, meaning whatever objective guilt we had before God, Christ bore that guilt in our place at the cross, which means our guilt has been removed. And our consciences have been cleansed because objective guilt being removed, subjective guilt, that is guilty feelings, need be no more. See, we no, we no longer are guilty before the law of God, and so we need no longer feel guilty in our hearts. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Yet not only that, our bodies have been washed with pure water, the writer says. Now, this could mean one of two things. It could refer to ritual, or it could refer to spiritual washing. Though whichever it is, each is to some degree implied in the other. So, so it could refer to the ritual washing of baptism. In the New Testament, the, the sign of, of being a part of God's people was baptism. And the outward act of baptism signifies the inward cleansing by the Spirit. But, but at the same time, it is an outward dedication to God. Now, in this case, the hearts being sprinkled clean and the bodies being washed refers to both an internal the heart, and an external, the body, dedication to God, a, a spiritual and a ritual dedication to the Father. Or our bodies washed with pure water could refer to our lives being made new, meaning that as, as Christians, it's not that our hearts have been cleansed, but we continue living as we always have. No, both our hearts and our hands have changed. 
And so this could refer to the Spirit's work in renewing our lives, the spiritual cleansing of our bodies. Now, however you take it, uh, the point is that our dedication to God is not merely internal. It is that, but it's not merely that. We are dedicated to God, body and soul, heart and hands, and that happens ritually in our baptisms and spiritually by the internal work of the Holy Spirit. And here's the writer's point, right? Knowing that you have been cleansed in this way, body and soul, internally and externally, hearts and hands, knowing that you have been cleansed, draw near. Knowing the work of our great high priest who cleanses us of all sin, who sprinkles our hearts and washes our bodies so that we stand before God pure and undefiled, draw near. There is no sin so filthy that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse away its stain. Draw near. There is no transgression so repugnant to God that the sacrifice of Jesus cannot remove its shame. Draw near. There is no wrongdoing so criminal criminal that, that the death of Jesus in our place cannot remove its guilt. Draw near. See, if you have faith in Jesus, you have been sprinkled clean and washed by the blood of Jesus. Draw near. Now, as I've uh, said over the past few weeks, while this exhortation sounds spatial, draw near, right? It, it must mean something else because we are drawing near to the throne of grace in heaven, according to Hebrews 4.16. And so we draw near by setting our minds on God, by coming to him in prayer, by turning our hearts to him. This is what we mean by, by being close to someone, right? You, you may be close to a loved one emotionally, though they are thousands of miles away. They may be always in your thoughts, though they are not physically in your presence. See, we can draw near to God by setting our mind on him and turning our hearts to him and coming to him in prayer. And of course, James promises in the New Testament, James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so, do you feel distant from God? James would say, clean yourself off by believing in the cleansing power of Jesus, and then draw near to God, knowing that as you do so, God will draw near to you. So, since we have confidence to do that, by the blood of Jesus, because he as our high priest has already entered in, because he has cleansed us by his blood and washed us of our sin, let us draw near. Second, let us hold fast. We draw near to God to commune with him, right? To pour out our hearts to him, to enjoy him. But this present life of being physically remote from God, even when we can be emotionally or spiritually near, is not the end game. Hebrews has pictured for us and will more fully picture for us a hope. The hope of entering into God's rest and dwelling in God's presence. This is not the hope of death, by the way. It's not the hope of going to heaven when you die, though that is a reality for Christians, but it is not our hope. Our hope is the hope of resurrection, of dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly promised land. Now, we'll see that uh, hope more fully spelled out in chapter 11. The exhortation now is, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And so let me just ask three questions about that verse and about our hope. Why does our hope waver? And what do we hope for? And what do we hope in? 
First, why does our hope waver? Why would he have to exhort us to hold fast our hope without wavering? Well, you know, would you consider yourself a hopeful person? Or does hope kind of rise and fall depending on the changing circumstances of life? You know, our hope wavers because our confidence is misplaced. We hope for the wrong things and we hope in the wrong things. As long as we hope for this life to get a little better, our hope will rise and fall depending on the current condition of this life. As long as we hope in the powers of this age to make the world a little better, our strength, our wealth, our knowledge, our government, our, our ability to control and manipulate circumstances, as long as we hope in the powers of this age, our hope will rise and fall depending on how well those powers seem to be doing. And so we get discouraged when something doesn't go our way because our hope was in this thing going our way. Or we get discouraged when we try and fail because our hope was in our ability to succeed. So that brings us then to the next question. What, what do we hope for? What do we hope for? As Christians, our hope is for the promises of God. Uh, the writer says, hold fast the confession of your hope because he who promised is faithful. Our hope is in the fulfillment of the promises of God. Uh, one, one of the, the psalm writers said, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits in his word, I hope. Why is that? Well, you, you see, when the writer uses the word hope here, uh, it's not actually referring to our hopefulness. Uh, that is, it, it's not subjective, uh, my hoping or not hoping, but it's objective. It's referring to the content for which we hope. Our hope is the fulfillment of the promises of God. Our hope is the return of Jesus and the renewal of all things and the resurrection of the dead. And oftentimes we see hope as a, as a kind of wishful thinking, as in, I, I hope I passed this test for which I didn't actually study, or, or I hope I don't get coronavirus, or I hope I don't lose my job. We hope for things in this life but things that are clearly not guaranteed. But biblically, hopefulness is not wishful thinking, but confident expectation of the thing for which you hope. That is, holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering, we can have a confident expectation that our hope will come about, which can be true. That confident expectation can be true because of what we hope in. We hope for the fulfillment of the promises of God. Well, what do we hope in? God's faithfulness is the ground of our hope. The writer says it very clearly in verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for, and then he gives the reason for such confidence, for he who promised is faithful. The reason for our confidence, our holding fast, our unwavering position is the faithfulness of God. If God is not faithful, we can have no sure and certain hope. But God has promised and he is faithful. And if you are, if you are uncertain, right, if you're uncertain about that, if you're uncertain about the faithfulness of God, then just look at the cross and the resurrection. In the cross, God was faithful to his old covenant promises to forgive his people and to fulfill his promises, even at the cost of his own life. We broke the covenant, so God came to deal with our rebellion by taking on human flesh and giving up his life in our place. 
so that he could then in turn fulfill the promises of the covenant to bless his people and not to curse them. We also see God's faithfulness in the resurrection because although Jesus went to the cross for us, he he himself did not deserve the cross. He was and is righteous, but, but God did not abandon him to the grave raised him. God was faithful to his own, and so he raised his son from the dead. God has fulfilled his promises for Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus through faith, God will fulfill his promises to you in Jesus. See, God is faithful. He has proven his faithfulness to us in the cross, and this means that every other promise of God is sure. He has promised to forgive our sins. He has promised to be with us. He has promised to see us through. He has promised a resurrection and the renewal of all things, and he is faithful to his promises. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. And so since we have confidence in Christ, draw near, hold fast, and third, stir up. The Christian life is not easy. Holding on to our confidence in Christ when the world seems at best to ignore him. Keeping our eyes on Jesus when so many other things vie for our attention. And living out that confidence when it's easier to squeak by as an anonymous Christian, right? These things are not easy. And the writer of Hebrews knows that. He, he, he knows his readers are being spurned for their faith. He knows the temptation to hide or worse, to turn back altogether. But he also knows that there is a way to maintain our confidence and move us forward. And so he says this in verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the first thing he says here is consider one another. That's, that's kind of a more wooden translation of verse 24. Let us consider one another. Christian life cannot be done alone. And there is, this is kind of a mini theme for our author. He talked about it back in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, the only way we can persevere in the Christian life is if we do it together. Otherwise, sin will get the better of us. Now, if you think, well, I do the Christian life just fine on my own, thank you, I can pretty confidently say that sin has already gotten the better of you. You just don't know it yet. Exhort one another, Hebrews 3 says, so that you be not hardened by sin. You need other people speaking into your life. I need other people speaking into my life. And so our writer says, consider one another. Your thoughts need to not just be on your own walk with Christ, but on the Christian walk of your brother and sister. Now, the problem is sometimes we consider one another the wrong way. We are jealous of those who find success, or we harbor bitterness toward those who have wronged us, or we're just plain nosy or gossips about the goings-on of others around us. And so one Puritan wrote about this passage. He said, to keep Christians from undue prying into other men's affairs, the Spirit expressly sets down to what end he would have one Christian consider another, which he thus expresses to provoke unto love. 
And so we consider one another that we might provoke one another. Now the word provoke is uh, in this sense is kind of an old term, I guess. The ESV translates it stir up and stir up is fine, but I kind of like provoke, right? It seems a bit stronger than stir up. And like the word provoke, the Greek word here could be used in a positive or a negative context, as, as I guess could stir up, right? You could stir up to love or you can stir up trouble. And the point is, there is this provocative, prodding, motivating work of community. We each are to stir up one another, to provoke one another to love and good works. And part of the implication is that these things won't just happen otherwise. You don't just enter the Christian life and start doing good works immediately. And we should do good works, and we, we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and we should see our vocation as a means to love others. We should do good as we have opportunity, but we don't. We need others to stir us up. And so our writer says, consider others to stir them up. That means we need to spend time talking about what love looks like and what kind of good works we have opportunity to do. Talking about things like how to be good spouses and how to be good parents and how to show hospitality and how to do good to your neighbors and how to, how to, how to, how to be good citizens, how to love well and do good works. Right? This is part of the Christian life. And, and so part of our role as the Christian community is to talk about such things and stir one another up in such ways. And so we consider one another to provoke one another. And of course, part of that, part of the means of doing that is we gather with one another. Verse 25 says, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. You know, it's so easy to drift out of community. It, it happens because maybe we don't feel loved or it happens because we just get busy or, or we just experience conflict in the church and we really don't want to be a part of that or because we're just tired. And in that, in that day, though, it was not just a drift. The church was experiencing persecution. And gathering meant the rejection by the wider society. So it was, it was easier not to go to church. And so some professing Christians had fallen into the habit of not meeting. Now, the word used here for meet together is a form of the word synagogue. And while there were certainly differences between the early church gatherings and ours, it likely does mean kind of the formal gathering of God's people. But of course, that's not to the exclusion of, of less formal and more intimate gatherings. The point is we need community, large and small. Now, this is a tricky time for community, isn't it? Because, because our large gathering is remote. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you through Zoom at the moment. We're not sitting next to one another. We can't see one another's faces. And this is not ideal, but it's what we've got. And that makes, though, the smaller gatherings all the more important as you gather with other believers, as you gather one-on-one, -on -one, so that we can maintain community and continue to encourage one another. And the writer says to encourage one another, verse 25, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He means, of course, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of salvation, the day of Christ's return. We, we see that, he says, because we see how scripture has been fulfilled in Jesus. We see God's faithfulness to his promises. And we therefore know that God is faithful and will fulfill those, this, this promise as well. 
And so since we have confidence in Christ, draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Remember that Christ has entered in. He has dealt with sin and now stands in the Father's presence. Because of Christ's work in the past, we too can draw near now, have the hope of drawing near in the future, and can encourage one another to walk in love in the present as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so since we have confidence in Christ, draw near, hold fast, and stir up to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the work of our great high priest who has entered into the heavenly places on our behalf now to present his sacrifice to you, to plead the merits of his blood for us. Father, we pray that we would have confidence because of the work of Jesus, confidence in our relationship to you, confidence that we have been reconciled to you, confidence that we can now therefore draw near to the throne of grace so that we may might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Father, give us that confidence and enable us to live in light of it as we draw near to you, as we look forward in hope, and as we stir one another up to love and good works day by day. Help us in this, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.